The Octorentry, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From Southwestern Australia, I'm your host, Byron Joel. G'day everyone, how you doing? Hope you're well. Welcome back to the Octarine Tree Podcast. Today's guest is Becca Tarnas. She's a very, very, very interesting lass from California. She's a scholar, artist, counselling astrologer, and an editor of Archi, the Journal of Archetypal Cosmology. She's the daughter of renowned psychocultural historian Richard Tarnas. She received her PhD in philosophy and religion at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, and her dissertation is titled The Back of Beyond, The Red Books of C.G. Jung and J.R.R. Tolkien. Becca now teaches at both the Pacifica Graduate Institute and the California Institute of Integral Studies, as well as several other online educational platforms. She's published one book so far titled Journey to the Imaginal Realm, a reader's guide to J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. In this episode, we explore Jung, the astrology of our age, Tolkien, the nature of the imaginal, the meaning of history, the re-enchantment of the human worldview, and much more. I find Becker's work to be incredibly important, as I say at the end of this discussion. I think she's really onto something. I think what she's doing is very, very important at the cutting edge of a certain uh, realm of exploration, particularly into the imaginal, into the re-enchanting of the human worldview and the reclamation of the imagination and the imaginal faculties and capacities as all but central to the human experience and uh, collective healing and evolution. So I hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I did. Let's get into it. Becca Tarnas, welcome to the Octarine Tree podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. My pleasure. So you are currently in California? Yes, I uh, live in Northern California in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Um, It's a really beautiful forested area, although it is ensconced in heavy smoke right now. Oh, really? Again? It seems to be a seasonal thing now. (laughs) I have a great affinity and empathy for California. I've never been to the north, though. The furthest north I've been is Santa Barbara, but it is an amazing place, California. Were you raised there? I was. I was born in uh, Big Sur, California, which Ah. is kind of the middle of the state, and it's a very beautiful 90-mile stretch of coastland. So I started life off there and then um, grew up in the Bay Area. I've, at this point, lived in... Uh, all the corners of the bay, pretty much uh, San Francisco, East Bay, and uh, the North Bay. and But now I, I live further afield. Big Sur, one of these days I'll drive Big Sur. I've actually asked a couple of other people this. Regarding the what you might call the geomantics of California, it seems to me that California is almost like the capital of novelty around the world, or has been for a few generations at least. Whether it's metaphysics or philosophy, the creative arts, movie making, music, the occult, Silicon Valley, 
It feels like there is incredible space there for these really novel enterprises to actually take root and anchor themselves in the material world and, and manifest. I've always wondered how much of that is consequence of just the mundane aspects of once upon a time it was cheap open land and the light's good for movie making and da-da-da-da. But how much of it is actually being emanated from the land itself and calling that forth from the human spirit? Do you have any sense of what I'm ranting about? Mm-hmm. Well, it is a very... Uh it's a very unique state and there are so many different microclimates in in this particular state that there's a lot of diversity ecologically and it's also an area that was tended very intentionally by uh, the the many different indigenous peoples who lived here uh, and continue to live here although of course have have suffered genocide Uh, at the hands of colonizers, but before contact with Europeans, California was tended by these different indigenous groups in a kind of wild horticulture. And so there was an abundance of uh, plant species and animal species that really made California a kind of paradise, this Mm. just wealth of Uh, resources that uh, weren't complete wilderness, but also uh, weren't uh, controlled in the same way as we would think of with uh, agriculture. And so that has made California a very abundant place. Uh, Even the name California references a kind of paradise. And I think that has really contributed to the the richness of this land that has inherently drawn many more people to this area and a lot of wealth and uh, so that kind of abundance can then give birth to uh, creativity of all kinds and whether that's uh, you know artistic expression or technological breakthroughs and so on you need something driving behind it uh, whether that is wealth or um, you know, creative potential being drawn to these kind of concentration uh, centers. And just another layer to add in there, besides the ecological, something, a story that I grew up hearing, and this refers more to San Francisco than to the whole state of California. Mm. But uh, there's a story of, of a man who traveled from San Francisco to India on a kind of spiritual quest. And while in India, a number of different people he met when they asked where he was from and he said, San Francisco, they said, oh, that's the spiritual center of the world. Hmm. And uh, he was kind of baffled by this because he'd come to India uh, seeking spiritual guidance. And he heard this from enough people that it kind of surprised him. I think this happened in uh, the sixties or the Mm seventies. And finally he asked someone please to explain it to him. And why do you say San Francisco is the spiritual center of the world? And they said, Oh, well, it's the place where new ideas meet the least resistance. Mm. Yes. And I don't know if that's true anymore. (laughs) Um, Mm. It might have been true when I was growing up even, but uh, I think that that maybe also is part of what 
at, at least historically has unfolded in California, that there is uh, this openness to the new, to the innovative that is present here. That's what I sense. The new ideas meet less resistance there. There's a, there is, or at least was for me, a sense of lubrication for that process. I'm curious, as a student of Jung, do you remember the first time that you saw Jung's Red Book? And were you already a student of Jung at that point? Mm. Well, it, actually, I wasn't. I knew of Jung and... Um, I primarily knew of Jung through my father's work and uh, his explorations of archetypes and so on uh, necessarily drew on Jung's work. And so I hadn't at that point in 2009 when the Red Book was published really explored Jung at all. At that point, I was still um, an undergraduate and but I heard about the Red Book when it was published, and I think I read the New York Times article that was uh, really, you know, exploring the Red Book publicly in in a prominent way. And I felt very compelled by it. I wrote my brother, and I said, you know, because the Red Book is quite expensive, I said, let's let's get this for our dad. Uh, let's get this as a gift. I think he'd like it but I felt really drawn to it. So oddly enough, that was the first book of Jung's that I purchased, right. even though it wasn't for myself. And I've often said that I kind of came to Jung backwards. So many people have come to Jung through, you know, reading Memories, Dreams, Reflections, or mm. you know, various uh, books in the collected works that have been out for decades. And and I had read some Jung, of course, before I actually read the Red Book. But really, the Red Book was my beginning with Jung. I didn't have preconceived ideas. And so I kind of got to start not quite at the beginning, but early on and see a different side of Jung than had been presented mm. for, uh, you know, basically the whole of the 20th century. Has anyone read the Red Book? It's one of the most important books of this century. This book that Carl Jung had written called the Red Book or Liber Novus, the book of the new or the new book. The Jung family estate wouldn't let anyone see until about 2009 it was released. And it was this incredible big doorstop tome, red, and he had painted the whole thing like a medieval manuscript and all of the text was calligraphy and he had spent hours upon hours on it. It was a magnificent work of art. And what it actually did was explain and reveal what had happened to him way back when he was studying under Freud around the time of the First World War. And you read his memoirs and he makes hints at what occurred to him. The keen reader and really adept, keen students of Jung's had picked up for a long time that something had occurred then and he wasn't really letting on. As it turns out, he went through a few years of intense visionary experience to the point of hallucination. He had an incredible capacity for visualizing and for receiving imagery in bizarre, rich, abstract, symbolic form. He then went on through his career to try and translate so essentially his entire career 
was him trying to come to terms with what he had experienced. And this red book is his testimony to that experience. Thinking about Jung and Tolkien in preparation for this, it kind of dawned on me that around that era, the turn of the last century, there seems to be a real rich group of philosophical and magical thinkers that also popped up around that time. And I just made a little list of them. Gurdjieff, Uspensky, Jung, Freud, Blavatsky, Steiner, Crowley, Krishnamurti, Einstein, Tolkien, I even threw Rasputin in there, Aurobindo, Gebser, Gandhi. Have you got any sense of like astrologically speaking or just in terms of a zeitgeist, the flavours and meanings and purpose of the type of magical thinking and philosophical thinking that was bubbling to the surface at that period of history? Mm. Well, of course, many of those figures, their their lives and works expand beyond this period. But what I would really focus on is one alignment between two outer planets. And these two planets are Uranus and Neptune. And they were in uh, an opposition, which is a 180 degree angle to each other. So you can picture it as the Earth is between these two planets and they are on opposite sides of the solar system and within a certain range of each other the archetypal qualities that astrologers associate with each one of those planets become mutually activated and we see this correlate uh, in the events unfolding on earth and so in terms of the the archetypal meanings of these two planets Neptune is the principle of spirituality, imagination, the sacred, the numinous, the religious. It's related to the uh, the realm of of images. It's the wellspring of the imagination. It's all potential. It's everything that is invisible and ineffable and magical and enchanted and invisible. It's subtle. It's symbolized by water, so it's merging and flowing and dissolving. So that's the principle of Neptune. And then the archetype of Uranus is related to awakening, to liberation, to freedom, to an acceleration. It changes whatever it touches. And so when we see Uranus and Neptune in alignment, that correlates in world events with periods of a kind of uh, cosmological and spiritual awakening in cultures around the world, whether that's uh, religious changes or awakenings, the birth of new philosophical movements or cultural movements. Uh, We see the imagination kind of unleashed and liberated in extraordinary ways. And so this opposition between Uranus and Neptune was in the sky from 1899 to 1918. And that covers the period that uh, many of these individuals you are speaking about were, were writing, were speaking, were creating artwork and so forth. And um, it really was a kind of uh, a sort of renaissance of spirit and Jung spoke about how there were, you know, individuals were seeking a new uh, spring of life and that in this time he found one and the water tasted good. (laughs) And 
This was exactly the period when he underwent his Red Book experiences, his confrontation with the unconscious. It was also the same period when J.R.R. Tolkien began his journey into Middle Earth. It wasn't the period when he wrote his most famous work, The Lord of the Rings, but it was when he first began developing languages, the elvish languages that went into his stories, that he wrote the first tales of Middle Earth, what are known as the great tales that are now compiled in uh, the Book of Lost Tales. Uh, It's when he created an extraordinary set of images, of illustrations that he compiled in a, a little sketchbook that he called the Book of Ishness. He was doing that at exactly the same time that Jung was writing down the fantasies emerging through active imagination that became his Red Book. And there are innumerable parallels between the two uh, sets of work that were emerging at that time. It's really quite extraordinary. For those listening, your dissertation was on that subject, correct? The similarities, synchronicities between Jung's Red Book, Leave and Obus, as we were discussing before, and Tolkien's Red Book. Was it the March of West? The Red Book of West March, yes. Yes. Yes, that was my dissertation. <laughs> right. Do you associate Neptune with the imaginal? I do, definitely. It It's very much connected to uh, the imagination, to... Uh, the image in general. It's also the principle of uh, archetypes and of symbols. And it really rules everything that is uh, transcendent, that is otherworldly. And because of that, it does have a connection to the imaginal or uh, in that term, by the way, imaginal the way I use it, at least, I'm drawing on the the writings of Henri Corbin, the Sufi scholar, who uh, employed the term imaginal to differentiate from the imaginary. The imaginary being that which is simply made up, what is unreal. And he wanted a word that could speak about something that was real, but not literal. Something that was the the true product and experience of imagination that wasn't uh, wasn't something that that was unreal or, or made up, but rather had a, a kind of core truth to it, ultimately that could best be understood as a a visionary or a spiritual experience. Yeah, and here's the question: If the imaginal is not mere all but disposable artifice which is the way it's been appreciated or not appreciated in recent decades or generations. What on earth is it? What is it? Is it a human faculty? Is it some underlying universal current? Is it an actual realm? I know this is almost impossible to describe, but like, do you secretly hold firmer suspicions or beliefs about what is actually going on than you dare (laughs) say most of the time? If I hadn't (laughs) asked that to walk with you. Not at all. Well, I do feel that I can't answer that definitively any more than I could answer the question of what is consciousness Mm. or what is the divine or what is mind. These are are things that we experience, that we know through that experience to be real, but they're not material. Mm. And there's a conflation that has taken place within modernity, within the modern worldview that has equated the material 
with the real. And if it isn't material, quantifiable, measurable, then it isn't real. And that that assumption comes out of the history of science that where as the scientific revolution was taking place, what could be measured and quantified and studied scientifically was bracketed off from what was spiritual, from what was uh, the domain of religion. And that bracketing was done so that we could gain deeper knowledge of well, actually of God's creation. That was the impulse behind the spiritual, accidentally said spiritual, I meant scientific revolution. But the slip up is in some ways uh, apt because there were spiritual roots to the scientific revolution for a time. But that bracketing was then mistaken for the whole. And so my exploration of the imaginal realm is an inquiry that affirms that we can have experiences beyond the material and and yet affirm them as real. And so what would I, I say in an unfiltered sense of what I think this is? It's, it's definitely something that human beings can access through the faculty of imagination. I would posit that it's not limited to human beings at all. I mean, I, I live out in the uh, in the woods and have the privilege of being able to observe different animals around my house all the time. You know, d- families of deer and foxes and squirrels and so on. And it's very clear from watching their interactions that they have as um, heightened a level of consciousness, intelligence, communication, and so on, as we do. It baffles me that that's even a controversial thing to say in academia, but they mm. do. it's so clear, spend any time with them. And so I, I would definitely posit that if we human beings have this connection to the imaginal, so would uh, other living species. And that, you know, none of us deny that we dream that that is something we uh, experience. And so the imagination is very much the same. It's like a dream, but we're awake. And as we come into relationship to that that place, Mm. and I like to call it a place because we can enter into a kind of domain and interact with different figures and uh, landscapes even. You You see this very clearly in Jung's Red Book and so on. But when I say place, I don't mean, again, a physical place. There's no Mm. where that I can locate it. And again, I want to draw on Corban because he writes about this so beautifully. It is a place Mm. that is everywhere and nowhere because it isn't physical. It, It is a realm in between the physical realm and the domain of abstract thought. Now that in between, again, can't be located in space. Uh, but that doesn't mean it isn't real. Um, so I, you know, you, we can't pin it down through our methods of um, quantifiability mm. or location. But what we can do is find ways to invite others to experience it. 
It comes very naturally to children. Uh, our education systems are very good at scrubbing that out of uh, children's faculty unless you really protect it. And for many yeah. people, it is a process of recovery, recovering something that I see as a, a birthright as are, you know, with us being a cosmic beings, it's a birthright that we get to experience the imaginal, but we have to learn, many of us have to learn again, how to do it, how to access that. And it begins by just affirming its reality and that you can have visionary experiences and be a sane person. This is one of the things that Jung affirmed and gifted back to the the modern Western mind, which doubted that. And, and that's why that period in his life is so shrouded in controversy and mystery. Before mm, the Red Book came yeah. out, everyone talked about, well, Jung went through this period of psychosis. We don't really know what happened. So much speculation. But with the emergence of the Red Book, it was clear he was both sane and undergoing a very profound mystical experience. Jung writes, it is of course ironical that I, a psychiatrist, should be at almost every step of my experiment have run into the same psychic material which is the stuff of psychosis and is found in the insane. This is the fund of unconscious images which fatally confuse the mental patient, but it is also the matrix of a mythopoetic imagination which has vanished from our rational age. The experience of the subjective and how the scientific materialist paradigm has abandoned and disposed of everything that can't be measured and objectified as at best a secondary or tertiary phenomena and what that has done to the subjective experience. And I was thinking to myself, well, then that in many ways was an overcorrection, a response to the religious periods that it was born from. And we tend to do this as a species culturally. We, we tend to overcorrect, it seems. You know, the pendulum swings. And if what we're actually after is balance, then we do tend to swing further out from the centre. Could there be pathological expression within this deep dive that some of us, I believe now, is undertaking, like recovering from materialism? Could there be pathological expression if and when some of us overcorrect into that re-exploration of the imaginal and the subjective? I mean, I think anything can become pathological for sure, and there's definitely a potential for an overcorrection. And there are some ways in which I think we can see this, whether we would say that this is uh, truly an expression of the imaginal or if it is more of a, a throwing off of uh, authority, mm. whether that is scientific authority, governmental authority. Uh, I do think we are seeing that kind of overcorrection or compensation now when it comes to uh, just tremendous doubt around facts. And we've had over these last several years, you know, the whole fake news phenomenon and then waves of conspiracy theories and also a very strong sense from certain individuals that their opinions uh, and non-expert opinions hold as much weight as like expert uh, expert revealed or discovered facts. Mm. And so in some ways now, maybe not everybody, but um, 
the the world is kind of caught in many different factions that uh, we're all living in our own universes. Mm. And we feed into those universes by what we believe, by what we imagine. And the more we live in echo chambers, the more we don't uh, see eye to eye cross-culturally or interculturally, the more isolated those universes are going to become. And I do see that in some ways as a dangerous overcorrection. And so really it's... I find in a, a lot of my perspectives on pretty much everything, whether it's uh, spirituality or uh, politics or, uh, you know, any range of ideas that I often try and seek the middle road mm. and find balance. And what is the balance? What is the synthesis? How can we try and see multiple sides at once? And it's a very hard thing to actually try and do these days. But that striving to to hold a uh, a balanced and nuanced middle ground uh, is perhaps what we really need at a time like this, where there are such extremes and polarities and swinging one direction and swinging another. Mm. Thank you. Well said. I hadn't anticipated asking that. It just came out of me. <laughs> There's a Jung quote that stuck with me. Man's estrangement from the mythical realm and the subsequent shrinking of his existence into the mere factual, that is the major cause of mental illness. I've long had an increasing suspicion that the lack of meaningful connection, recognition of and connection to what you might call the imaginal and to spirit, the mythopoetic and to ecology, they're close to the root cause of many of the pathologies that we see expressing in the human condition. Do you have a sense of that being the case? I very much agree with Jung's statement in the sense that in our disconnection from from the mythic, which is a disconnection from the archetypal, those those powers, those first principles have to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that even when we live in a world seemingly devoid of myth or devoid of meaning we've kind of scrubbed the horizon of meaning to paraphrase Nietzsche Mm -hmm. that those mythic principles still have to go somewhere and what Freud and Jung and others in the depth psychological tradition discovered is that where they went was the unconscious Mm -hmm. and then they emerge from those depths to uh, to run our our being, our personality without consciousness. And, and we see the result on a world scale, whether that, you know, in, in their time, it, we could see it result as, you know, both world wars, for example. But at a much larger scale, we see that same, uh, that same effect coming through in ecological devastation and climate change and, and so on. And, so it's a very dangerous thing to deny the gods to say they don't exist because mm. they're going to go somewhere and where they're going to go is into the human unconscious and then play out in very destructive ways. And when we are in relationship to them in a more uh, participatory and engaged relationship and we recognize that each one of us is a living nexus point of these archetypal principles, 
then we can better learn how to wield those powers through us so that we aren't destructive, so that we can grow and evolve um, individual, individually and relationally, um, professionally, collectively, and so forth. There's a term that I actually really like, enchantment and the re-enchantment of worldview. What do you perceive, where are we at in that process now? Like you were speaking before about the astrology, outer planet astrology of the turn of the last century. Where do you think we are at now currently within that greater story unfolding? I know there's no like definitive line in the sand and you're not prescient, or maybe you are. No, but, um, I'm not. <laughs> Where do you think we currently are in that process? Because, I mean, one only has to look out the window or turn any device on to realise that things are pretty damn convoluted and chaotic at the moment. But where do you perceive us to be and where we may land? Oh, well, that is maybe one of the greatest leaps of imagination I've ever been t- asked to uh, take is to imagine where where we're going or where we might end up. And it does very much feel like the human species is at a brink or at a precipice and that in order for us to survive as a species and it's hard to say at this point if we'll survive as a civilization Mm. that there's going to be a very profound convergence of different streams because on the one hand humanity needs to come to a full reckoning with the ecological crisis and to really live every day in acknowledgement that we all live on one globe, on a living planet, that we are one species among many that is part of a biosphere and that we need to learn how to participate in that whole to be a member of the earth community not a dominator not um, an exploiter and so much of what we have been as human beings and so there's this one side of the equation going forward that simply has to do with brute survival and Mm. then on the other side is this question of re-enchantment and imagination and archetypes and the gods or God, the divine. And as an astrologer, someone who spends every day looking at correlations between the planetary alignments and the events unfolding in individual human lives and unfolding on the world stage, as dramatic and difficult as the world stage uh, story has been of late especially one cannot help but feel there's a deeper meaning here that there is something beyond us that is unfolding of which we are a part and drawing on the ideas that I've heard uh, my father Rick Tarnas lecture about many times something he will speak about frequently is that humanity seems to be entering into, or maybe already in at this point, a near-death experience. And like any near-death experience, 
it has to be real. You can't fake a near-death experience. Otherwise, the effect of actually coming to that brink and surviving it, it doesn't really unfold. You, you can't, uh, you would take that for granted. It has to actually be real to really look death and destruction and, and total loss in the face and accept it. Yeah. And then how that completely reconfigures your morals, your relationships. And it may be that, that humanity is at that point right now. And I very consciously say humanity because, and of course, <laughs> with the way we've been behaving, uh, it seems like we're taking, we are taking quite a few species down with us. But the earth as a whole, Gaia as a whole, as a living organism will continue to evolve. And when we look at the geological record, we do know that after every mass extinction, the earth has come back more complex, more beautiful, more creatively expressive and dynamic every time. And so I do take some great long-term hope that the the earth project maybe even the the human project in some form is still unfolding and that it is in our hands and we are also part of a much larger maybe divine cosmic story that's unfolding and so where exactly in that tale we are we can't necessarily say but it makes me think of one of my favorite scenes from the Lord of the Rings um, in the two towers when Frodo and Sam are sitting at the edge of Mordor and they're realizing that they're in a story and they're at one of the, the darkest and most difficult parts of the story, although they don't know it's about to get a whole lot darker too. And they're remembering all these other stories that link up to their own and they know how those stories end. They know that it turned out beautifully that it turned out well mm -hmm. that the heroism was for a reason but in those moments the heroes of that story just knew they had to keep going that they couldn't turn back and so sam and frodo realized that they too were in a book that one day they're going to be read out of this uh, great red book with black and red letters by a fireside and i feel like that's the moment that we're in as a species we have to wake up to realize we're in a story and that it is our task to move forward through to the next phase of that story. And what does it mean to choose life and to choose the earth community and to uh, bring forward a different kind of world? It's so easy to give up hope, but if we give up hope, then there's no way anything will ever change. So cultivating a kind of active, living, faithful hope, I think, is, is absolutely essential. Well said. I know just enough about ecology to know that despite the damage that our species has wrought on the planet and the existential threat that we build toward ourselves, that she's going to be just fine. And we may very well take a fair few species out with us. But people always talk about how like fragile nature is. I disagree. I think particular dynamics at any given stage can be considered fragile and that you only need to remove one actor and all relationships are changed. 
But ecology itself, she's not in trouble so much as we are as a species at our own hand. And that doesn't mean it doesn't matter either. Not at all. It doesn't mean, you know, that we, I think grieving is such an important part of this time. I think of the work of Joanna Macy. I teach regenerative agriculture studies and I have a foundation of regenerative agricultural unit. And then in there, I throw in Joanna Macy's work because I consider it essential reading the grief process and sitting with the reality of that existential dynamic of where we are. I mean, that's a hard thing to swallow. It's such a big swallow. It's such a jagged pill that most people haven't languaged it. It just sits way, way down. They don't know how to actually sit with that, the reality of what's occurring on the planet right now, the ecocide and uh, all the rest. So to actually grieve that so one can move through into the next process of being immediately with it and having hope is incredibly valuable. Mm. There's a colossal anguish and it's not an individual matter, but we as a planet people are sick in our soul. We have pathologized pain. We have made it a wrong thing. We have made it like a mistake, uh, rather than acknowledging that this is, we need pain to alert us for what needs attention. And we have been treating it as some kind of uh, enemy to our cheerfulness. I began so in this, as I was exploring how personally to befriend this pain, because I knew it was speaking some truth, as is indeed in Buddhism the first noble truth. The first noble truth that the Lord Buddha taught is dukkha, suffering. There is suffering. And if you want to get anywhere, honey, if you want to grow up, <laughs> if you want to... <laughs> open to life, if you want to be enlightened, whatever, however you describe the state you're after, then you have to face that and see there is suffering. But in the church, the Christian church, you know, blessed are they that mourn. And that would come up and sound. And so what happens for people as they get real about their true feelings, when they tell the truth, about what they see and feel and know is happening to our world. Something so beautiful and so freeing happens. It's like that poem of Mary Oliver where she says, you tell me your despair and I'll tell you mine. And this allows the world to become more vivid, seeing the wild geese, seeing this incredible planet that we're in with all the life that's around us because we had the courage, the strength to speak of our despair. But precisely because we speak it, we don't stay there because that despair is the covering of our love for our world and we crack it open by speaking it so the love can uh, act. So the key is in not being afraid of our pain for the world, not being afraid of the world's suffering. And if you're not afraid of 
of it, then nothing can stop you. The next question I was going to ask that you kind of answered for me was, does history have a meaning? Mm. It's tricky to say, you know, where one would put a line in the sand. Is it the agrarian revolution? Was it uh, monotheism? Was it the industrial revolution? Was it advent of scientific materialism? But this place we found ourselves in now where there's an all but complete dismissal of spirit and the imaginal, what's the purpose of that? What will we learn from that? If we can zoom out, what's the medicine, the collective long-term medicine in having abandoned spirit? Well, to draw on on a variety of thinkers uh, from, you know, Owen Barfield to Jean Gebser and um, Jung himself, of course, and I'm going to reference Rick Tarnas again too on this, that this kind of uh, withdrawal of participation of the human being in the world, where uh, in previous ages, human beings were in more of what the anthropologist Levi Brule called a, um, a participation mystique, where the human being is embedded in the natural world and meaning flows seamlessly between the human and the world. And that uh, everything of the natural world is in some ways speaking to one. But in that embeddedness, there is also not as much uh, freedom and autonomy. And that this process of disenchantment has in some ways been the, the painstaking development and forging of, of an individual self, of a mm. human self with interiority. And we can mm. trace this evolution through language and uh, through... Uh, you know, the, the history of poetry and, and scripture and writing where you can actually see a kind of evolution of consciousness through language and you can see over time a greater and greater inter interiority being forged where mm. what was seamlessly flowing, this kind of meaning or spirit between the individual and the world uh, becomes more and more contained within the human being. And the a kind of height of that is the rational modern uh, worldview where uh, the entire world is scrubbed of meaning and the interior of the individual is the only source of meaning and purpose in the world. And that any meaning that is found outside of oneself is simply projected upon the world. This is kind of the extreme height of that. Yeah. And that's you know where it's kind of been taken too far. But the, the gift of actually having that autonomy, that individuality, that self forged. Uh, Charles Taylor is another figure in this mm -hmm. uh, lineage who's, who's really uh, explored these ideas. And um, that is something that can now, in this process of, as you're calling it, re-enchantment, come back into relationship with the whole, with the cosmos. Because if there is a recognition that we human beings have interiority and meaning and purpose and intelligence and so forth, and also the world does, then we can start to come into a more reciprocal dynamic with the cosmos. 
Mm-hmm. And that relationality may be where we are going. Mm-hmm. And so it's not one extreme or the other, but something that starts to hold the balance of both. And here I want to draw on uh, Jean Gebser's idea of the integral phase of consciousness. Where he mm-hmm. identified all these earlier phases of consciousness, the magic, the mythic, uh, the theoretic, and that Uh, we may at this point in this chaotic moment in history be transitioning into a more integral consciousness. And integral, unlike the other mutations of consciousness, are it, it is able to see through all of those different layers. And so to be able to experience the world rationally, theoretically, but also mythically and also magically, that all of these layers are actually within us because we have all evolved through and out of them. There are inheritance. And perhaps where we are uh, in uh, entering into a new phase, we're actually entering into a phase that encompasses the whole more fully. Yeah. And perhaps our inherent power, the capacity and power is so great that we needed something as terrifying as history to actually live through and actually for it to be a real, real drawn out experience to immunize us against the worst aspects of our potential agency down the track. Mm. I have ebbs and flows of hope and despair and grief and wonder like everyone, but I just can't shake the feeling that we as a collective humanity is going somewhere absolutely incredible and that this period we're in is a necessary growing phase. It's a necessary phase in a node, an evolutionary node that can sometimes have very little consolation for the individual human experience going through it, given the differences in scale, but that we are going somewhere incredible. I also think that you bringing up the story of Frodo and Sam sitting at the edge of Mordor is incredibly apt because I I have the feeling that things are going to only get at least a little bit more chaotic in the immediate future. We really need to learn, or perhaps I should say remember, how to live uh, and to think and imagine beyond our own lifetime and even beyond our children or grandchildren's lifetimes, that the work we do now ripples so much further forward and that I often have to remind myself, you know, it doesn't, It's not going to get better next year or the year after, or even a few decades hence, I may not Mm. see this at not just may it's extremely likely that none of us alive will see the transformation that we are working towards. But if we don't work towards it, it won't unfold. Yeah. I've noticed a, a collective coming down, I was heavily involved in the permaculture community a decade or so ago and incredible visions of this new way of living and kind of paradise, Eden, heaven on earth, age of Aquarius, whatnot. And then myself going through a period of coming down and going, oh, hang on a minute. I'm not going to see that. And I mean, there are amazing things happening all the time. I mean, there are incredible things happening all the time. But realising that we have incarnated smack bang in the middle of this chaotic node and like you said it's very very unlikely that we are going to kind of breathe a sigh of relief at any point in our lives 
lifetimes and say to ourselves, oh, wow, now we're in some nice new, more stable node of, of history and culture. Mm. That's something to come to terms with. It really is. And at the same time, in coming to terms with that, I feel like it's so important to remind ourselves as well that in every moment we can cultivate joy. In every moment we can find laughter and pleasure and connection and that that is part of what gives life to resilience. Otherwise, you know, if, if every day we kind of fall into the despair and cynicism, mm -hmm. then we have even less hope. But, and I'm not speaking about a kind of escapism or denial. And to come back to your earlier question, I do think another shadow side of the imaginal would be a kind of escapist fantasy. Quite Neptunian. Exactly. Neptune yeah. only. I'm going to Neptune out of here <laughs> and, and not be connected. And that's why I say it's a synthesis. It's a synthesis mm -hmm. between survival and imagination and that, that we need both. But part of that is, is cultivating the joys in, in each day that, that we can find uh, with ourselves and with each other. Yes, indeed. I need reminding of that a fair bit. I have Neptune combust the sun. So uh, <laughs> I have to watch that escapist tendency. I've got just a couple of more questions. And these are just novel, indulgent questions on my behalf. I actually didn't cover. There's a <laughs> whole bunch I didn't cover. I don't want to keep you too long, but I will ask you, who and what are the elves? <laughs> well, Oh, that's an interesting question because Tolkien was so ambiguous about how he would answer that. He would simultaneously affirm their independent reality and also that they are products of, of the imagination. And he'd, he'd kind of walk between these two lines. And so very simply put, I would say that they are beings of the imaginal and that the imaginal intersects with with the natural world i mean when we talk about fairy when we talk about uh, the enchanted realm if if you spend time in nature in a forest by the sea when you see the the sunlight sparkling across water or catching spider webs through the trees you know that that is fairy you know that that is a an enchanted magical place and that's where the elves dwell that in between realm that is both natural and imaginal and so we could say yes they're products of the imagination but as we were just talking about before that doesn't mean that they're not real they're just not literal physical beings in the same sense that we physically are. And for Tolkien, they also represented a kind of highest mm. potential of human artistic and imaginative creativity. Mm. And all of his work in some ways was striving for that level of enchantment. Thank you. A portrait of humanity's positive potential when embracing the imaginal. Yeah. Now, this last question is completely left field, okay? So you're allowed to laugh at me if you want. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> so. I'm nervous. <laughs> yeah. Um, what totemic symbolic meaning 
would you attribute to Sasquatch? Mm. Pregnant pause. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, part of the pause is I just, I simply haven't explored the the literature, the ideas around Sasquatch enough to really be able to speak to Sasquatch. Um, It's not about the lore of it. Like imagine if you were a Jungian psychotherapist and someone said to you, I had a dream about a big mm -hmm. naked hairy humanoid creature that lives out in the woods. Well, I mean, at that level, I would say that um, it feels, to bring some astrological language in, it's a kind of Mm. Plutonic figure. Pluto Pluto is the archetype of the natural world, of the elemental powers of nature. Mm. It's like Pan, um, very Dionysian and Mm. instinctual. And so I guess I would see Sasquatch as this kind of, embodiment of the plutonic archetype in a more humanoid form okay cool thank you (laughs) you're welcome i've really enjoyed our discussion there was heaps i didn't get to but um i don't want to hold you too much longer and i have to go and drive 300 kilometers right now so i gotta get going but um (laughs) thank you so much for taking the time becca i think you're onto something i think what you're doing is incredibly important and nourishing there's a real like soul food that comes with your work I, I really think you're onto something so I thank you for what you do and you don't need my encouragement but I do encourage you to just keep doing what you're doing and following your gut because you're on the right path thank you oh thank you so much I'm very deeply touched by your kind words and um inspired and yeah thank you so much for this conversation it was really rich and enjoyable and I appreciate all the the different realms we explored we really covered a wide range in this conversation so thank you my pleasure thank you okay all the best you too thanks again Bye. ah sweet sweet revelation Within today's podcast you have heard an excerpt of Befriending the Pain of Our World, featuring Jonah Macy, used with kind permission from Tim Wilson at Persona Media. Please find links to their websites in this episode's show notes. In closing, we would like to remind you of what was likely one of the first life lessons that many of you received in childhood. In the form of a seemingly innocuous nursery rhyme. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 merrily. Life is but a dream. as our guide And though we drifted without sight 
So then with our hands 